readings, my friend. If you've ever wondered why you can declare with confidence that the Bible is true, you'll want to tune in to today's episode. Today marks the start of a five-part Why Believe the Bible series I've recorded with a special guest for my other podcast. I'm sharing it here because knowing why you can believe the Bible and being able to defend your faith is important and lays the foundation for your boldness. Speaking of boldness, that is the theme of the renewed conference I'll be participating in as a speaker on November 10th. The free virtual event actually starts on November 6th and runs all week long. I'd love to be able to hang out with you live on November the 10th. All you have to do is get registered today to make sure you secure your Zoom spot for our chat time. The link is in the show notes for you. Now on to today's topic, the Bible. The Bible should establish the foundation and framework for our lives and our stories. The Bible should be our ultimate source for absolute truth in the midst of a world that doesn't want to believe such a thing as absolute truth exists. But why should we believe the Bible? How do we know the Bible is true? To answer those questions, I've brought on a special guest to teach you and me why we can and should believe the Bible. This series is designed to teach you some practical, logical ways and reasons to believe the Bible is true. Now, I didn't seek the expertise of a widely renowned scholar or even my pastor to teach this series. I could have, but I didn't need to because God provided a rich resource in a spiritually strong man I have known my whole life and who happens to live right down the street from me. By bringing him on, I wanted to show you that you don't have to have a fancy degree or be an official minister of the word to seek truth and defend it. You simply need to be willing to study, to learn, and to discern truth from error. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to my dad, Harry Schaefer. My dad is a carpenter by trade and has a deep love for God, for learning, he's always reading something, mostly history books, and for his family. I have learned so much from him over the years, and I am excited to give you that same opportunity now. He's taught many Sunday school classes and on occasion fills in for the pastor. Today, he gets to fill in for me. In other words, this is not an interview-style series. I literally handed the microphone over to my dad as we sat down at his dining room table. He talked, and I took notes. I pray you will enjoy this series as much as I did and grow more confident in your Christian faith as a result. Here's Harry! Okay, the question that we're dealing with is, how do we know that the Bible is true? How would you go about establishing proofs that the Bible is true? We all know that the Bible claims to be the true inspired word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And 2 Peter 1.21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And over 2,700 times, the inspiration of God is claimed by such statements as, God said, and thus saith the Lord. Now, all these are important, and you would expect any book inspired by God to make these claims. However, these claims of inspiration by themselves do not make up proof that the Bible is true. After all, there are other books and other men that claim to be inspired by God, and they're not such as the Book of Mormon or the Koran. There's an old saying that says, talk is cheap. Anybody can claim to be inspired by God. So just making a claim does not con uh, constitute proof. We'll have to find some other way to prove that the Bible is true. Some actually say that we have to just accept the Bible is true by blind faith, like a leap in the dark. 
But God never asks us to accept anything by blind faith. It's just the opposite. True Christianity is a reasonable thing. We have good reasons to believe it. Two quick examples. First, when at about the age 30, Jesus was revealed first by John the Baptist and then by his own uh, preaching to be the Son of God, the Messiah, he did not expect people to just believe his claims because he made the claim. In John 10, 37 and 38, he says, If I do not the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus then went on to do many things that authenticated his claim. He healed the sick, made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, even raised the dead. Now, Jesus says, you have evidence that my claim is true, so believe it. He does not ask them to take a leap in the dark by blind faith. He gives them solid evidence and then asks them to believe based on that. The second example is Jesus was uh, crucified and he died. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, at first, even his closest disciples uh, were reluctant to believe in his resurrection. But Luke tells us in Acts 1-3 that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many invaluable proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He proved his resurrection by many infallible proofs and then asked them to believe it. The same thing we face with the Bible. God gives many infallible proofs that confirm the Bible is true, and then he asks us to believe it. So, what are these proofs, and how do we go about establishing them? Forget for a minute that we're talking about the Bible. Uh, how would you go about proving that any book or any document is true and accurate? Now, I love to read history, so I picked as an example a history book. The book is called Landscape Turned Red, written by Stephen Sears, and it claims to be a true account uh, of the Civil War Battle of Antietam, which was fought September 17, 1862. It's an important battle because more Americans were battle casualties on that one day than any other day in uh, the U.S. history. There were 22,717 battle casualties. So Sears writes 357 pages telling the true story of events leading up to and the battle itself. So how can we prove, or maybe how can Mr. Sears prove, that what he writes is true? I want to give you a short example. I'm going to read one paragraph coming from page 187 of his book. This is in the middle of the battle, and he writes this. The situation in Christian's brigade was even unhappier, for its commander unexpectedly went to pieces. As their columns approached the East Woods, they were put through what a veteran described as, quote, an unnecessary amount of drilling. First it was forward, then by the left flank, then forward, then by the right flank, forward, left oblique, etc., until we thought they were making a show of us for the benefit of the rebel artillery. Many of our men fell, the end of the quote. Stewart's and Colonel Lee's gunners had them in crossfire now, and suddenly Colonel Christian dismounted and hurried to the rear, muttering that he had a great horror of such shelling. He would duck and dodge his head and go crouching along, one of the men recalled. Those in the ranks might feel a certain toleration for one of their own who fled the field, overcome by cowardly legs, perhaps because at one time or another most of them experienced that same unreasoning fear when going into battle, but their tolerance seldom extended to officers who broke and ran. Veterans of the brigade remained unforgiving in recalling the incident years later. 
the unfortunate colonel would resign his commission two days after the battle. So that's what Sears writes about this one event that happened in the battle. Did it really happen? Did that, I mean, the battle did, but did that particular event happen? Uh, Did Sears make it up because he thought it'd be a good story? How can we prove it's true? Well, at the end of that paragraph is a footnote number, and it refers to the notes that he puts in the in the rear of the book, and he cites two sources for his story. A guy named John D. Vautier of the 88th Pennsylvania and W.H. Holstead of the 26th New York wrote personal accounts of the battle, and these are their personal accounts, and they're in a collection called the Antietam Collection, which, if you want to go there and check it out, is at Dartmouth University. And so that's his, uh, his authority for saying that. This is how we can prove the truthfulness of Sears' account of the Battle of Antietam. We see what he writes and compare that to facts and confirmed sources outside of his book. If they match up, we know that his account is true. It's the same for the Bible. Take what's written in the Bible and compare to known established facts and see if what is written is true or if we can find an error. Now, in Mr. Sears' case, he's at the mercy of his sources. If one of them wrote down something that was wrong, Sears would also then pass on the error. The Bible, on the other hand, claims to be inspired by God and so is without error of any kind in the original production of it. So we're now going to look at a number of examples from the Bible that will show that the men who wrote it, being inspired by God, were amazingly accurate about everything they wrote. First type of evidence that we'll look at is called predictive prophecy. The Bible has hundreds of examples of predictive prophecy. These prophecies predict events that were in the future from the time when they were written and give minute details about the event and sometimes even giving the name of a person not yet even born who would be involved in the event. This knowledge about what is future to the writers can only come from God. No man can predict these things on his own and be right. If we can show that the Bible makes detailed predictive prophecies and that they are the account then then accurately fulfilled, that would be proof that the Bible is true. This principle is stated in the Bible this way, the prophet which prophesieth of peace when the word of the prophet shall come to pass then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. Jeremiah 28, 9. And who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not sent it, commanded it? Lamentations three thirty seven. So we're going to take a look at a couple of examples of predictive prophecy. And the first one is found in Ezekiel chapter 26. And it's about the city of Tyre. That's the spelled T-Y-R-E if you want to look it up. Uh, Tyre was one of the three great Phoenician cities in what is today Syria. The three cities were Byblos, Beirut, and Tyre. Phoenicians had grown rich and powerful by trade all over the Mediterranean, all over the Mediterranean area. They had established uh, outposts through the Mediterranean all the way to Spain to support their extensive merchant fleet. Carthage, the city of Carthage, was founded by the Phoenicians from Tyre. And Carthage grew into a great city eventually uh, on its own and developed into a major military power that eventually produced Hannibal and threatened Rome itself. This is all in the future from when Ezekiel wrote. When Ezekiel wrote, Tyre had been a major player in the Mediterranean for well over 1,000 years. So everybody knew who he was talking about when he said something about Tyre. So we're going to read from Ezekiel 26, 
First, we're going to read the first 14 verses. And this is all a, a prophecy written by Ezekiel. And it came to pass in the 11th year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, because that Tyrus hath said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, that was the gate of the people. She is turned unto me, I shall be replenished. Now she is laid waste. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causeth his waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus, and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her, and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God, and it shall become a spoil to the nations. And her daughters, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword. They shall know that I am the Lord. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus, Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings, from the north with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and companies, and much people. He shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field, and he shall make a fort against thee, and cast a mount against thee, and lift up the buckler against thee, and he shall set engines of war against thy walls, and with his axes he shall break down thy towers. By reason of the abundance of his horses, their dust shall cover thee. Thy walls shall shake at the noise of the horsemen, and of the wheels of the chariots, when he shall enter thy gates, as men enter into the city wherein is made a breach. With the hoofs of his horses shall he tread down all thy streets. He shall slay thy people with the sword, and thy strong garrisons shall go down to the ground. And they shall make a spoil of thy riches, and shall and make a prey of thy merchandise. They shall break down thy walls, and destroy thy pleasant houses. They shall lay thy stones and thy timber, and thy dust in the midst of the water. And I will cause the noise of thy songs to cease, and the sound of thy harps shall be no more heard. And I will make thee like the top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built up no more, for I the Lord have spoken it, saith the Lord God. In the next three verses, 15, well, 15 through 18, talk about uh, how the other nations are astonished at the fall of Tyre. We won't read those, but we'll read the last three verses of the chapter, which is 19, 20, and 21. And notice how many times, just in these three verses, is emphasized that Tyre is going to be destroyed and never be rebuilt. For thus saith the Lord God, when I shall make thee a desolate city, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I shall bring up the deep upon thee, and great waters cover thee, when I shall bring thee down with them that descend into the pit with the people of old time, and shall set thee in the low parts of the earth, in places desolate of old, with them that go down to the pit, that thou shalt not be inhabited, and I shall set glory in the land of the living, I will make thee a terror, and thou shalt be no more, although thou be sought for, yet shalt thou never be found again, saith the Lord God. And so Ezekiel writes that. We read in verse 1, back there where he said, in the eleventh year, he wrote that. That would be the eleventh year of the Jewish captivity. Now we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar II and the Babylonian army came and they captured, they took Jerusalem, and that, that began, in, that was in 605 B.C., and that began the Jewish captivity in Babylon that lasted 70 years. So that would make this writing to be in the year 596 B.C., 11 years after the 605. There are five specific things predicted to happen to Tyre. 
that we just read about. Put them down in a list. This is what it looks like. Nebuchadnezzar would come with the Babylonian army and he would lay siege to the city and take it with a great slaughter. Many nations would come against Tyre. That's the second thing. Three, the city would be completely broken down. And the stones and the timbers and even the dust were thrown into the, would be thrown into the sea. The site of the city would be scraped bare like a rock. Four, it would become a place for fishermen to spread nets for drying. And five, the city would never be rebuilt. So before we get into what actually happened to Tyre, we have to have a little bit of an understanding of the ge- uh, geographical layout of the site. The main city of Tyre was on the mainland, and it was on the coast of the Mediterranean, but also there was an island about a half mile off the coast, and that belonged to Tyre also. They, so they had ships out there, and they had people out there, but the main city was on the, uh, uh, on the mainland. So the prophecies begin, began being uh, fulfilled just 10 years later in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar began what Josephus, the ancient historian, says was a 13-year siege. Nebuchadnezzar took Tyre in 573 BC. But although there was a great slaughter, many of the Tyrians escaped to the island, just off the coast there a half mile. The Phoenicians were a seafaring people, so they had a lot of ships and a lot of boats, and that allowed them to get away. Nebuchadnezzar had no ships, so he couldn't follow them, and he couldn't fight them on the water or invade their island. So he did everything he could do, which would be he completely destroyed the city, left it just a heap of rubble, and he went off to something else. Over the next 240 years, Tyre was involved in many wars because geographically it set in an area between Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire in the north and the Egyptian Empire in the south. And these were always at war. So these superpowers of their day and their allies would often meet in battle close to where Tyre was. Again and again, we have many nations, like the waves of the sea, we read in verse 3, relentlessly, one after another, coming up there and, and fighting around Tyre. No doubt the main reason for the Tyrians to stay on the island was there they were safe. They didn't rebuild their city because everybody was fighting around it. So far, some of Ezekiel's prophecies were fulfilled. First, Nebuchadnezzar did come. He laid siege to the city and he took it. Two, many nations did come up against the Tyrians there in their area uh, and fought. And three, for 240 years at least so far that we're reading about, the city wasn't rebuilt. But what about the rest of the prophecy? It's been 240 years, and the rest of the prophecy hasn't been fulfilled. That's comparable to our own country's history. If you think of 1776 to 2023, that's 247 years. That's a good long time. And nothing has happened to finish the prophecy. So for 240 years, the people that are around there may have been thinking that Ezekiel and the Bible got it all wrong. Then we come to the year 332 B.C., and a 24-year-old Macedonian general named Alexander brings his 40,000-man army to Tyre. Now, like Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander had no ships, and he can't get to the people on the island. But he does have a lot of people under his control, his allies. And so he collects a large fleet of boats and ships to attack the island, but he's not able to breach the fortifications that they had built on the island. But he's not willing to go away. So he does something that's never been done before. He decides he's going to build a causeway. He called it a land bridge 
from the shore to the island, a half mile long. And he's going to make it out of the ruins of the original city left by Nebuchadnezzar. So his army picked up all of the rubble, all of the stones, all of the timber, everything, and threw it in the water and made a causeway out to the island. But they came up just a little bit short. And so he ordered his men to scrape every bit of dirt down to the rock and throw that into the water and to get out to the island. And it worked. A combination of attack from the ships and the causeway finally took the city. About 6,000 of the Tyrians were slaughtered in the battle. Another 2,000 that were taken captive were crucified on the beach. It was a tough time to live. Uh, the Tyrians, about 30,000 that were left, men, women, and children, were sold into slavery. Alexander lost about 400 men in the attack. Alexander's causeway is actually still there, but you can't tell it was a causeway because over the last 2,000 plus years, deposits from the sea built it up so that the island is now a large peninsula. It doesn't, it's not an island anymore. Today, there is a city on the island called Tyre. Well, the island peninsula, we'll call it that. But the original city on the mainland has never been rebuilt. In the early 20th century, Wallace Fleming wrote a book called The History of Tyre, which actually, if you want to read it, is still in print. Uh, by Columbia University. Look it up on the internet, and it says you can buy it for $58.15. But he quotes some travelers who visited Tyre in 1697. These people said that the people that lived there, quote, were only a few poor wretches uh, subsisting chiefly upon fishing. He said they spread their nets to dry on the bare site of the once mighty city. The Bible predicted the fall of Tyre hundreds of years into future in exacting detail, and got it all right. This is what is meant by the verse we quoted earlier. When the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Jeremiah 28.9 Prophecy concerning Tyre and its fulfillment is a powerful argument that the Bible is true. In this introduction to the Why Believe the Bible series, we learn some key points. First, we can prove the truth of the Bible by comparing it to outside sources. We take what's written, compare it to known facts, and see if it matches. If it lines up, it's true. And two, we can use predictive prophecy. Men inspired by God wrote amazingly accurate prophecies, and we looked at one such prophecy concerning Tyre. In the next episode, we'll dig into prophecies made by both Isaiah and Jeremiah regarding Babylon.